Is our sail up and is the rudder down? Is the keel down? Are we going through these challenging waters in the direction that we want to? And that has to be my primary focus as a CEO is guiding through these really very uncertain and difficult times. That's what it takes to actually earn the right ultimately to be a public company and then to be able to see that well out into the future is the next thing that anybody approaching the markets, I think in 24 or 25 is going to have to be able to answer the question of how far into the future can you see? Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is both personally and professionally to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. You look f***ing stylish. Saw the shoes. What do we got? Uh, I've got some white elephant Atmos. That's got to be a thing for you guys, right? Like if you're, <laughs> let me ask you this, honest question. Someone walks into StockX, executive hire. First thing you do, you look down? 100%. 100%, right? Well, I mean, it just is representative of your passion for the business. And like, okay, me, did you look down? So <laughs> no. I'm wearing like just normal white. <laughs> what just, are those? These are clay CLAEs, okay. just like okay. normal white yeah. shoes. Yeah. Nothing crazy. Yeah. I thought of maybe whipping out some of my Air Maxes or something, <laughs> but I just thought, no, don't do it to them. Yeah, you um, should try. But okay, so let me ask you, like with these shoes, would you be like, hmm, that's a problem? Well, after I had joined as CEO of StockX and we were out, raising money. And uh, we were up and down here, Sand Hill Road, and went in to talk to a very well-known venture capitalist. And after we had given the pitch, he pulled up his shoes and he said, look, I, I just don't get this story. These shoes that, that I'm wearing, I can get them anywhere. What's so special about what you're doing? And then I asked him, well, let, me, let me see those shoes. And so he showed his shoes and I said, well, this is why you don't understand the story. Those shoes are for the common man these shoes. And I just put my shoe up on the table no and I said, these shoes you can't acquire. No way. And I said, that's why you won't understand this story. That <laughs> and, is... and the co-founder of StockX, Greg Schwartz, we walked out of the meeting and said, I can't believe you said that to him. You, you insulted him. That is so funny. I said, well, he didn't understand the story. He didn't appreciate what StockX is, what it would become. So I'm going to assume you did not get an investment from them. <laughs> We didn't want an investment from right, them. Right, they right, did, right. They didn't understand what we were trying to what we were trying to accomplish. I guess it was, it's true. You're right. You're kind of eliminating people that are either missionaries or mercenaries. Yeah, yeah. That want to be part of this thing and get it or not. Yeah. You raised all this money. There's never been a cool marketplace like this before. Okay. Right. right. But marketplaces are like complex businesses that require sophisticated sets of investors. Yes. You're building a big software business and you've raised from a bunch of the sexy cachet venture firms. Right. But most of those venture firms are run by individuals that are not your core demographic. Right. You know, 70% of StockX is 30 and under, 35 and under. We have one board member who- Who is cool. (laughs) I mean- way cool. He's way cooler than I am. I mean, he has a backdrop of, of sneakers. He's a collector. 
absolutely into it. A full on hype beast knew the story early on. So we do have investors that truly do understand the story, but you're right. The demographic is focused on that next gen. Well, it's got to be tough. Like telling, I guess like when you're pitching the story that way, it's got to go over people's heads in some cases that just don't really get it. I mean, it's not that dissimilar from, I don't know, like a TikTok or something. It was very misunderstood for a long time. I guess when you look at, and I'm not trying to draw the comparison completely, but early on in Amazon, it wasn't just a book marketplace. Mm -hmm. There was aspirations to achieve something much greater. Yeah. StockX was conceived not necessarily as a marketplace for sneakers. It became that. The original vision was to try and create a stock market of things, not just sneakers, but sneakers became the thing that created a really huge enterprise. But I think you're right. Marketplaces are incredibly challenging because typically you don't own the product, so you don't have inventory. You're relying on the experience of third-party sellers to deliver an experience to buyers that you're building a platform to be able to attract. And so you're trying to create this consistent experience and the marketplace delivers something that a brand can't deliver, a retailer can't deliver, which is I want access to what I want, when I want, and I want it now. And so you have to be able to deliver that through a marketplace experience. So how is it that you can control and create a great experience when you don't own all of those parts to it? And that is the complexity of marketplaces. And that's been, I guess, the thread through my career has been working through different marketplaces across lots of different industries. But that is the challenge is how do you create this a great experience, a consistent experience in a marketplace? Well, it's almost like in high, what is the expression where it's easy to put the dots together looking yeah, backwards? Yeah. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Well, it's like, it's <laughs> like when you're going through your career, who the f- would have thought that the last three experiences that you had literally made you tailor-made right. for this job from running the New York Stock Exchange to StubHub to then running Americas for eBay. I mean, could you have asked for a better series of experiences to set you? And turns out you're cool. That helps. Oh, I don't know about that. That helps. <laughs> that helps. I'm just saying, that's pretty good. There's no way you could have known. No, I would. I, I didn't know. And for the record, I didn't found StockX. When it started on day one, just incredible founders that had a huge vision. But when StockX started, Consistent with what you just said, there was an article that went out and said, we're starting this new e-commerce company based on the principles of the New York Stock Exchange, StubHub, and eBay. And at the time, I was CEO at StubHub, and I thought, this is weird. I mean, this is exactly my career. And I sent a note to one of the co-founders, Josh Luber, on LinkedIn at 5 a.m. California time, saw the article, and I said, hey, I'm the CEO of StubHub. There's one person in the world who knows exactly what you're talking about. I've either been CEO or I'm running or top executive at all of those places. And I think it's a huge idea and I'd love to help. And that was the beginning of my journey with there. And so I look at it as somewhat serendipitous to my career. Yeah. Not totally intentional on my part, but I saw it and realized that it was a really interesting opportunity and a big vision. But you didn't go straight from StubHub there. You went to eBay first. Yeah, well, eBay was, StubHub was owned by eBay. And so I was on the executive committee at at, right. uh, at eBay. And then I did go and ran the Americas at eBay during that time. Totally. And so I was kind of in both worlds. And okay, like, tell me the truth. Give me the honest skinny. <laughs> in the back of your head, 
when you saw that email go out, yeah, were you like, oh, f- I got to go run this thing? Like it, it was no. one, when did the idea yeah. start to tickle you that maybe you want to do more than just help? So this was fairly early on. Dan Gilbert, founder of StockX, owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers, Quicken Loans, Rocket Mortgage today, just incredible entrepreneur, was in San Francisco. And this is after I had invested very early on in the company. And he was out here for the Warriors-Cavs finals. He actually came to my office at StubHub and said, hey, you know, if there's every time where there's an opportunity for you to run StockX, we'd love to have you as part of the story. I mean, this was, I think, a couple of years before I joined. And at the time I said, well, Dan, this is it's a really small company. I'm running a, a really big company and I'd love to just help. And, you know, I was working with the founders and advising them and Greg and Josh and Dan early on. And it was just such a cool story. It was just exploding. And then when I was leaving eBay, which awesome company, huge platform, and looking at what I was going to do next, I wanted to go way more entrepreneurial. And this was something that I saw. I, I knew what needed to be done. I saw the potential and decided to go much earlier than I had been in my career and leverage that experience and try to apply it you know, at StockX. So at that point, the company had raised a Series C? The series that I joined was when GA and GGV and DST came, came in, in together. Yeah, came in together. Okay. And, and I had actually... And the announcement been, was actually with all of you together. It was all, all, to, all together. It's a package deal. Yeah, it was kind of a package deal. Yeah. <laughs> it was a package deal. But it was, uh, you know, it was raised at then, was a, you know, a unicorn valuation. Company was under $100 million in revenue. Yeah. Relatively small, largely concentrated in, in the U.S. And then we began this march towards global expansion and just rapid, rapid growth of the business. First unicorn in Detroit. Is that true? Yes, it is true. Yes. Largest venture back company to ever come out of Detroit. You got to wear that crown pretty proud. You know, it's incredible. You know, when we look at what it's like running a business on both coasts and we have team members in all over the world. But when you think about a company that comes out of in America, like the root of innovation, and you see what the auto industry was, how much innovation came out of that area. And then you see the power of the universities, the people that are coming out of the Midwest. We've just had a great opportunity to build a company based in Detroit that is in the middle of a new resurgence. So cool. And you were living in the Bay before that? During yeah. the eBay thing? Yeah. I've kind of moved in and out of uh, Los Altos specifically four different times in my career. I had moved to New York. I had come back to Los Altos, was working at eBay, was working at StubHub. And then in the early days, actually for the first year at StockX, was just commuting back and forth from Detroit before the pandemic and the world shut down. So you remember Bandera before it became Los Altos Bar and Grill? Of course. Classic (laughs) institution. Of course. Did your family... Yeah. Move with you to Detroit? No. So I've been a commuting CEO. And then as the pandemic was a stay at home, we were not in the office for almost like two and a half, almost right. three years. Oh, because oh, you joined like three, four yeah, months before the well, pandemic. Well, it was at six, six months-ish yeah. before the, actually, yeah. no, a year, a bit, about a year before the, okay. before the pandemic. So you didn't June. move to Detroit at that point? No, I was commuting back and forth. And now you've moved to Detroit? And now I live in Salt Lake City. Salt Lake. Yeah. And how often do you go to Detroit? I'm there a lot. Almost weekly? 
not quite weekly because we have operations around the world, but I'm there actually quite frequently. It's our largest concentration of team members anywhere in the world. Yeah. And then we, of course, have offices in so many different countries as well. And so kind of an equal time spent traveling around, seeing our operations. How much, are you, how much are you traveling? How much are you on a plane? Yeah, not a badge of honor. You know, when I, I fly Delta mostly and, uh, you know, they'll always come up to me and say, oh, we've never met somebody who's has so many miles as you do. Oh, you're like that. It's that bad. Or yeah, it's, good. That, it's that bad. I think there are seven people that have more miles than me on Delta in the world. Fuck you. No way. <laughs> Seriously. What? Because I've been traveling for my career for over 20 something years. What? Uh, yes. And all of the businesses that you've been traveling for are relatively international in nature. Yes, all international and all, all global. And are you so, kidding? And so I, I, I've, I've been on the road 50% of the time, almost at a minimum for the last 20, 20 years. Two weeks out of every month, like repeat. Yeah. Almost every month, if not more. Yeah. For 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Traveling, in my opinion, because I travel a lot, not even, I mean, I'm ashamed to say I travel a lot in front of you, uh, but <laughs> but in my opinion, traveling is all fun and games and hunky-dory until there is a delay, then they deboard you, then they reboard you, then something else. You start asking yourself all the big life questions in those moments. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, I, I've been in that headspace quite a few times. <laughs> Where uh, you just start asking yourself like, is this worth it? Those are the only times I find myself asking like, is this yeah. worth it? Well, you know, I've been married for 27 years. I have four kids and I've had a super interesting career. It's taken me all over the world. I can't even actually remember a time where I took a personal day on the front end or the back end on, on any trip. I'm all business all the time when I'm, when I'm on the road. Yeah. And so as much as I've traveled all corners of the world, typically I'm flying in and dark mission, halo going in, doing and what I have to do and then, and then get out so I can be in my family. role as a, so as a you're father the guy and that like the meeting will end at two o'clock. The flight is at three o'clock. Oh yeah. It's 40 minutes to get to the airport. And you're like, no, we're trying. Like you tell, no, you tell not me. only will I try, I will succeed. Yeah. I, I, I think I've missed, even though my wife would say, I can't believe you've never missed a flight. I don't miss flights, but I'm there when the doors are closing. Almost and always. Totally optimized for that time. And, and it's, for it. me, it's not stressful. It's just like, that's just the way I roll because every minute of my life and every minute of my time for so many years has just been optimized for what I have to accomplish in that day. Yeah. And I'm comfortable with that, but I also don't want to waste time. And to me, wasting time would just be not optimizing and getting the most out of every single day. Yeah. And so what that means for travel is just that I'm going to optimize. But you're also out. the guy that like, if you're running late, they'll bring a car for you and literally bring you to the plane. They have that service. I think it's only happened for me twice. Okay. Well, where, where it was, they picked you up, they hold a plane. I did have an experience once at JFK where they held a plane for me. Yeah. I'm not flying private. Yeah. Uh, you know, they held a plane for me and I thought that was pretty cool. That's pretty cool. But that's maybe like the only benefit. That's pretty cool. <laughs> On the like time wasting thing. Yes. Someone just gave me this feedback recently. One of my closest friends pulled me aside over the weekend and was like, hey, you do this thing where if something is five minutes of an inconvenience for you, you just shut it down. And he's like, I don't think you do it because you're inconsiderate. 
I think you do it because you're so neurotic about how you spend time that you over-optimize. Sometimes you just got to let these things happen. You know, like sometimes time just goes. Yeah. I'll give you another example. And then I want to hear your experience to time as well. When I work out, I cannot look at the time. You know, if I'm in a workout class and there's a clock on the right where the temperature might be, I cannot look at it. I have my Apple watch on. I refuse to look at it. If someone's doing yoga next to me and he or she has an Apple watch on and it flashes me with the time, immediately I become discombobulated and I start almost becoming so focused and aware of the time that it takes away from what I'm doing. Now, hopefully you're not like that, but I don't know. Do you experience time in a similar way? Well, I just feel like every day, and maybe this goes back to just when I was a young a young lad, but I had to wake up in the morning at 4, 4.30, deliver newspapers every day. And so I've always been an early morning person. So I'm up at five o'clock without an alarm and ready to go. And typically I'll start my day, I'll do a workout, I'll go on a climb, I'll go on a ride, I'll do something to challenge myself and then I'll be in a long 12, 14 hour workday. That's pretty much what my life has been for a long time. But because time is so precious, because time is so important and I'm trying to optimize for a balanced lifestyle as well, it's rare that I'm going to be sitting still. I think the counter to that is more of, can you sit still and be present in the moment? And I think for me, that's one of life's great challenges is to be present in the moment to actually appreciate what you're seeing, what you're experiencing without going on to the next task, the next thing, because I'm just a task-oriented person. Maybe that's the OCD in me. It's also allowed me to accomplish a lot of things in a day, but I have to just be super conscious of how in it am I in every second of the day. You biked nine stages of the Tour de France. Is that right? Yeah. You do... Heli skiing through the Swiss Alps. You've <laughs> like hiked through some crazy places. Let's just say the Tour de France thing. Do you get to the end of it or the top of a peak and are like, oh, yeah, this is nice? Or is it very quickly like, nope, gotta go? You know, I think there are so many parallels to climbing in my life because I've, I've always spent a lot of time in the mountains. And I think philosophically people will debate the notion of why do you climb a mountain? And somebody once said, because it's there. But I do find that being at the peak gives you at that moment in time to perspective to see. And when you're descending, you don't see, but you know what is above you know and have experienced and have seen what you saw at the peak. And you take with you into that next experience when you're at the lower elevations, that knowledge of what you've seen above that propels you to go do it again. Mm. And that perspective that you get from challenging yourself can be applied in all different aspects of life. But being at that summit for that brief moment gives you that vision, gives you that sight that when you're off it, which again, you're there for just a brief moment, 
when you're off that peak, you take something with you, which is the perspective of that experience, that challenge, that struggle of what it took to get to that spot and that brief pleasure of being able to see. But it is so momentary. It is a fleeting moment. And, you know, I think people will define careers as success, that getting to the top of the mountain. And that people just don't understand that that's not it at all. Because that moment at the peak is so fleeting. Mm. And so it's almost a false quest Mm. to sit there and say, I'm trying to define my life by those moments. I think if one can but appreciate the vision and perspective of that moment and take it into the next one, I think that's part of the the journey, the journey of life, the journey of a career, of of a life well-lived is that experience and that perspective of the various challenges that you've tried to conquer, tried to overcome, and the lessons you've learned from that, being scarred, bloodied, and marred along the way. Yeah, I think that's well said. When does the presence afflict you? The ability to stay, (laughs) like you said, it's something that you struggle with. Yeah. When does that show up? I I just give you another brief story. This was just a couple of weeks ago and, you know, winter's about upon us and I'm looking, staring up at the mountains. I'm like, I got to get to one more peak before the snow sets in. And so off on a Saturday morning, I go, I get to the top of this summit. I'm alone, which I shouldn't do, but I was alone that day. And at the very top, there was just a, a little bit of snow. And I was just like, oh, this is incredible. I've worked so hard to get here. This is so great. Taking in this perspective. So I'm just going to sit down here for a second. So I sat down and I sat literally on a bushel of thorns. I mean, it was just, it was just a cactus and I had probably 200 spines where I sat down, not in a comfortable spot. And I spent the next half hour picking those spines out. Off your ass. Yes. So I was sitting there going, okay, this is awesome. I made it to the top. I got this perspective. I'm going to sit, I'm going to reflect and then- I'm sitting on a cactus. Oh my God. (laughs) And so I think that life has a way of delivering that to you to sit there and say, Hey, you're celebrating this moment. And then wham, you get hit with a challenge. You're humbled. You're taken down to your knees and you realize that life is a lot more about that accomplishment. Life is a lot more about what I'm learning through that. And I've had so many of those things, those thorns, that have happened right after good times or when I'm trying to celebrate that moment. And then I just realize I'm taking back to, well, my purpose is actually overcoming these challenges. My purpose is to learn from these experiences, not necessarily to sit there and celebrate the experiences, but to learn and to grow. Yeah. When you were a kid throwing around newspapers, where was that? Issaquah, Washington. Okay. East side of Seattle. Did you stay there until school? Yeah, we, we um, lived there in Seattle for, I mean, I was there from second grade through high school. Okay. And uh, delivered papers when I was, I think, started in third or fourth grade. Every single morning I had to get on my, on my bike. And uh, for those that remember those days back in the 70s, I had this bike that was made by this tire company called Shucks. I wanted this, a mongoose. A mongoose was the cool bike mm-hmm. to have, but I had a shucks bike. And so I would get on my bike loaded with newspapers and I had to ride, I think it was like three or four miles was my route. And there was a section of this route where I had to go through this huge blackberry bush. And if you know what a blackberry bush is like, it's just thorns. They're all over in Seattle. 
But there was this one section I could either go through this blackberry bush was about 50 yards and it was super narrow and super scary and always dark. And if I didn't go through that, I had to ride about a mile to get to that same spot. So it was like, hey, I can just go right through or I ride a mile. And there were days I'd sit there and be like, yeah, somebody's waiting in there is going to kill me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going through. And then there were days like... Screw it. I'm just going in. <laughs> oh my but it God. was like every single day I had to encounter that blackberry bush and go through it. That's what I remember most about my paper route was that blackberry bush of just encountering that every single day. I don't think I would let my kids go out, you know, at 5 a.m. in the morning and ride three or four miles away from home. And Well, but it serves you. It did. It did for sure. They're going to have a better, more cushy upbringing than you did probably. Yeah, probably. Is that a topic of conversation with your wife? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a challenge of this generation is really finding your lane and finding your purpose and having to do that, I think, when you've got the world at your fingertips, so to speak. Yeah. And as a parent of four, I think raising kids in this generation is super challenging. And I think, you know, my wife and I really are are focused to try and really raise great human beings. Uh, in the midst of a world that's filled with a lot of confusion and, and challenges. But, you know, I think in the life experiences that everybody goes through, and it doesn't matter where you live or how you were you brought up, there are always life challenges for everybody in every circumstance and how one overcomes those challenges and takes a lesson learned and applies it hopefully to the next next challenge. I think that's the principle that I try to Instill on them. In, instill in my kids. And, you know, we're, we're still going through that. I've got one left at home. And uh, I think all of, all of our kids, just like me, are kind of a... Hardcore. Well, no, it just, I think all of us are, we're created by the set of choices that we make. Some good, some bad. And mm-hmm. the learnings that come in between. When you're traveling. Yeah. I guess it's different now because the kids are basically out of the nest. Yeah. But was there things that were super important to get back for? It was always important for me to get back as quickly as possible because I knew I was missing out on on certain things. There was absolutely trade-offs associated with having a career and traveling extensively and and being away and missing some key moments that I certainly have regrets about. You do? I do, absolutely. But at the same time, the choice of career opened up opportunities for my family and for me that I wouldn't have had otherwise. But you do have regrets. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Like what? Can you give me an example? You know, my third child, son, when I was at the New York Stock Exchange, we lived in Connecticut and I worked downtown New York and it was about a two and a half hour commute each way when I was in New York. And so I was commuting for four to five hours a day. And I'd get up at five, I'd leave. And the best case scenario was me getting home at 7.30. That was a New York commuter lifestyle. And my number three would say, dad, during the week on Sunday night, he would say, I'll see you on Friday. And that would always like pain me. I was like, no, I'll be back. And I was home every single night, but it pained me. And he would say that he would crack his door open so that he could actually just hear me leave at five in the morning when I was going to get the train. And that pains me a little bit. But at the same time, I think later on now, I hope that he would see a dad that was committed to being a father, but a dad who was working really hard and knew that I was working for 
a purpose, which was also my family yeah. and supporting my family, but that it also required great sacrifice. It wasn't something that was just easy to do. Yeah. It was really difficult. Uh, I was challenged to get up and go every single day and work those types of hours. But again, hopefully the example instilled that work ethic for me of what was required totally. to not only succeed, but just you live my life, live the job. After New York Stocks Exchange, StubHub, eBay, let's imagine, I'm just making shit up, but like money is not really an issue in the way that it was. You're going to a startup, right? right like right. you're not like, yeah. like you're not even optimizing for money yeah. right now at this point. Right. It's not your W-2. It seems to me that your family is uniquely important to you relative to most people. It feels like a very strong part of you. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like big. Top priority. Top priority. Number one. Yes. Overwork. Yeah. Part of my upbringing, but yeah, I mean, success in the career is important to me. Yeah. Failure at the home was not an option. And that struggle, that challenge to be successful in that role as husband and, and father and the other things that I do, that is a challenge like anything else. And creating that balance is also something that I've struggled with and worked hard to achieve at times and yeah. at times been out of balance. And, you know, for me, that's been, you know, a really important thing to be great at those aspects of my life as well. Yeah. Do you ever get guilty about your drive? Meaning you didn't have to even work was kind of my point about after eBay. You could have stopped hypothetically. Yeah. You could have just done the climbs, hung with the family, seen the kids off to school. Like you had that option. I couldn't conceive of that as a, <laughs> as an option. I just felt as though there was more for me to do. I actually still feel that well, although I'll always say to my wife, I'm like, Oh man, I can't wait until I retire. And she always says, well, what are you going to do when you retire? <laughs> and I was like, I have so many other interests to do, but I chose to stay in the game, wanted to be in the fight. And I was also super passionate about this company and this idea. I mean, it, there was a reason because I actually felt for me, it was like, wow, this is so serendipitous to the rest of my life. Shouldn't I do this? I mean, this felt like there was great meaning behind it, taking this opportunity. It wasn't just another company for me. It was the arc in some aspect of my career. Yeah. That makes total sense. I have more questions that I want to revisit <laughs> on the um, travel morning, the routine stuff. How routine oriented would you consider yourself? Well, like, do I do the same things every day? Yeah. Yeah. Like routine, meaning pretty much every day I'm going to be, again, hiking, climbing, riding, working out in the morning. That's probably how I start my day. Yeah. And what about if you have, what if you're traveling all day? Same. Same. I'll have a pair of running shoes. And you'll wake up earlier. I'll wake up at the same time, no matter where I am. So if it's 5 a.m. in London, I'm going to get up at 5 a.m. and I'm going to be running through London. And or, are you, or is, that, or is that natural? Is your body's circadian rhythm just doing that? Or are you, are you intent? Like, is there, I'm just intent where I just feel physically that I have to stay certain level of fitness to be able to enjoy the things that I know I'm going to want to do on the weekend, but also just to be able to optimize and be efficient with what I've got to do every day. Yeah. That being physically fit, I think is just a, almost a requirement for living that life of traveling and being on the go, but also 
being ready at the moment. I mean, a lot of times in the city that I'm going to land in, I'm going to land and I'm going to be hitting it hard in meetings all day long. And I couldn't do that without a fair amount of just endurance physically to do that. So I, I try to really challenge myself and push myself every single day. There's actually a great climb here in Los Altos called Moody's. I don't know if you know that. No. Know that hill right off of Page Mill Road. Oh, yeah. Just a little section. It's just a little section to get you up to Page Mill Road's half a mile section. And when I lived here, I would ride that multiple times during the week. And it's super, super steep. Very, very difficult. And every single time it was hard. And the analogy to my life is like I compared my life to Moody's in the sense that it's always hard but the more that you're persistent in doing the things, actually, you, you just go faster. And so for me, the training aspect or the challenging aspect is part of this theme of just being persistent about doing something every day that maybe I'm able to go faster or able to you know, navigate through the challenges of life a little bit easier because I've just pushed myself every day. Yeah. I'm very curious. Are you listening to anything when you do these things? No, Never. Um, I'm, I'm in my head. I mean, I will sometimes go on a hike and go on a ride and I will get to the destination and ask, I don't even remember where I was because I'm just thinking about the day or I'm thinking, I'm processing things that are going through my head. And that time for me is, you know, I'm not interrupted by anything else. I'm typically really focused on what I'm doing, but it's also a time where I think my mind and body is just processing all the different inputs that I have every single day on multiple decisions or multiple different strategies or things that are going on or managing through a crisis in those moments typically is where I get some clarity on, okay, this is what I got to do today. Yeah. It's an interesting idea that I've never really heard framed this way around the wear and tear of being a CEO that's traveling around the world the job requires so much energy that it's athletic in nature. That energy is fueled from physicality. There's an incredible endurance that's required to put in a 12, 14 hour day, back to back to back, different meetings, different stakeholders, different things that you've got to turn on and be on and be on your game all day long, every single meeting. There's eyes on you, on every word, every breath, everything that you're doing. So you can take that as incredible amount of pressure or you just kind of put all your energy into it. But that is what's required. I think today of, of a CEO today is you're on all the time. Coffee? Mm-mm. No. No coffee? No. Booze? No. I've never had a drink in my life. How about food? Are you? Yeah. I mean, super serious about how you eat? I mean, not super serious, but we're very conscious. And when you are flying from Tokyo back to Utah and it's like late at night, let's say you're in a lay flat and you couldn't sleep. I don't know. Do you work on the planes? For me, the plane, and this is not always the case, but it's like Pavlov's dog. And, and this is true, I think, for decades. It was even true today. I am never awake on takeoff, ever. Come on. Never. Not once. I will sit, I'll get into my seat and I will almost fall asleep instantly. Now I couldn't take a nap on a Saturday or Sunday ever, but I get on a plane and the world's away from me for a moment. And for the first hour, I'm just out. And that's kind of like trains or planes 
I'm, I've needed that because that's typically a time where I'm, I'm recharging. And so for me, like that sleep is not difficult in that moment. I have a hard time falling asleep sometimes at, at night, but on a plane, for some reason, unaided, I'll sit in that seat wow. and I'm out. <laughs> and, and when you come home from a like 14 hour flight, having just hit it so hard in say Tokyo for three days, yeah, it's one thing to physically be there. Yeah. But then to bring another level of energy that you just gave to the last three days, it's not easy. No, it's not easy. And believe me, I think, you know, walking in at times you sort of feel, I think, falsely, oh, hey, dad's home. And there's a, you know, moment of celebration. That's never the case. It's like I'm parachuting into the lives of my kids and my family and, and they're like in their full sprint of whatever they're yeah, doing. Yeah, you're and like, so go to just like, drop hey, off to school. Hey, or- dad's home. No, like, uh, will you just make sure the trash is out or like, <laughs> what are we having for dinner? What are we making? Like, I got to dive in there as well. And moving between those worlds and turning off the professional life and being at home, that's sometimes a challenge. I think it's more of a challenge. That's probably been more of a challenge with a phone in hand or during the pandemic. But at the same time, I really do try and put things behind me and be back and be home when I need to. Can you give the 30 seconds? Like what does StockX do? So StockX is a global marketplace for trading and consuming current culture. So when you think about what a global marketplace is, as I've talked about before, it really is a platform to connect buyers and sellers from all around the world. And when we talk about trading and consuming, there's an aspect of our marketplace, which is collectible in nature, asset-like, whether it be sneakers or apparel, things that you can't get somewhere else. And current culture really defined by next generation consumers of what they want most. It's not everything. It's the most desired of things. And so that's what StockX was originally built around. And that's what we're still trying to become. I was on there. There's some cool shit on there. (laughs) There's some really cool shit on there. And I was thinking, gosh, okay, so my mom has probably never heard of this company. She still goes to, in most cases, Nordstrom, or in some cases, maybe Nordstrom Online, right? Right. But my little brother, who's younger than me, no StockX very well. Yeah. And like buys a bunch of shit on there. Yeah. Probably stuff that he doesn't need in some cases, but nonetheless, he doesn't need his like 10th pair of J's, you know, (laughs) but whatever. What does the buying patterns of the future generation tell you about what the world will look like for us? Yeah. Then, because it actually, and sorry, just to caveat one more thing, it actually feels like even in the States, we're further behind digitally or we're not where China is right? or some other places in Asia around how they consume retail. Yeah. We're in U.S. e-commerce is absolutely different from what is happening in China. And I think we have actually more China-like commerce coming into the U.S. than the other way around. And when you look at what what's happening in other places, it's really powered by this sense of, community. It could be group buying. It could be video shopping. And it's a seamless integrated experience between the products, the payment platforms, the social aspect. And even if you go shopping in China, 
there may not even be a checkout stand. It's a scanning of a QR code, which show you the providence of what you've just purchased. You've got, you're buying it on your same social platform. It's just a seamless experience. The US e-commerce experience is different than that. But at the same time, what is driving consumption in the US, you have to remember that 70% of US GDP is consumption oriented. So we are a consumer-based economy. And when you look at the next generation of consumers, which we really define as maybe it's your younger generations, there are things that are more important to them than they maybe were to us. Although Jordan's for us that have been in the business for a while started back in 85. But I think what today is inspired, and I've said this so many times, but people see what is on the feet of the athlete or the influencer or the artist they see that inspiration and they want that particular product. When Taylor Swift is showing up to a Chiefs games and a pair of New Balances, that very particular shoe is sought after and you would go to StockX to be able to get it, even if it was released years and years ago. The experience that I think we're really trying to provide is that idea that you can access any consumer good, particularly the most popular, the most in-demand good, and you're not actually having to go to a store or wait for a release or wait in line or all these other limitations of the retail experience or the brand experience that can only be powered by a marketplace. I think it's the coolest thing about the platform is you might say, oh, well, why would I need another pair of these sneakers? Our platform is powered by people that aren't just buying them, they're actually trading them. They're actually making money following their passion. And that could be in the collectible space and it can be in the apparel space. And, and it certainly is the case in sneakers. I meet people all the time from young kids to college kids that are actually putting themselves through college, leveraging the economics of our platform. They're day traders in current culture on StockX. And so that StockX experience is not just about consuming, but it is about this idea of trading. I can buy and sell and I can power my own side hustle, my own little economy, my own little stock market of things and create an economic opportunity for myself. And I I think that's the coolest part of StockX is that what other e-commerce platform is a place where you can make money. And StockX is acting as the trusted intermediary between the buyer and the seller. Yes. Meaning if it's a pair of Jordans, you can count as a buyer on the fact that StockX will have done their checks yes. to make sure that they're legit, they're yes. real. I think this is underappreciated in terms of the benefits of marketplaces, as I've just described, easy access, You know, particularly marketplaces that we're very accustomed to today when you think of content as an example, user-generated content, which is kind of where we're going and how we're powered by. But you think of the challenges that all of these platforms face in terms of the content that you don't want to get to the consumer. What does it take to actually eliminate all of the bad content that's created out there? And that could also be products as well. What we had decided early on is that we wanted to stand in the middle of that transaction so that no product Mm -hmm. that gets to the consumer hasn't touched our own hands. Like we have done our work to verify that product. And that has been you know, the source of trust. It's been the source of our brand. It's not easy. It's technologically enabled, but that is a difference between our marketplace and others 
that effectively just connect a buyer and a seller and don't do the extra work to make sure that that product that you verify that you've done the work. I'm not going to ask you when are you going public, but I am going to ask you, how do you think about going public? And a company of your size and scale and growth rate, you're getting to that time where you're not going to raise that many more rounds. Like you need to do something. Having run the stock exchange for as long as you did, I'm super curious just on your general evaluation framework of how and when the right time is to go public. And obviously I'm sure that StockX would fall into that framework. What's interesting about entrepreneurs and particularly entrepreneurs that have the rare fortune to get to that place of the public markets, I think you have to realize that 99% of the companies that are started and created never have that opportunity. And so it's rare to actually get to that size and scale to be a public company. And that's not lost on me because I've seen that entrepreneurship and I've seen that high hurdle for companies and entrepreneurs from around the world. And I don't think everybody should have just the objective of I'm just trying to become a public company because in many senses, that's just the starting line for is the starting line of a new of a sure. new race in the public markets. For us, it's been an interesting journey because we have scaled uh, so incredibly, but like the times that we're in right now, and I've been in the capital markets, so to speak, for my entire career, we're in a really interesting time. I think this is the most interesting time in my career of being in the capital markets for almost 30 years of a time where there are very few companies that are actually executing well in this post-pandemic time period. The last four years have just been incredibly volatile, incredibly uncertain. And we're not immune to that because we're trying to grow and to scale a company, but also in the midst of very turbulent times. And so the things that I can control in that is not necessarily that as an outcome, but is our sale up and is the rudder down is the keel down? Are we going through these challenging waters in the direction that we want to? And that has to be my primary focus as a CEO is guiding through these really very uncertain and difficult times. That's what it takes to actually earn the right ultimately to be a public company and then to be able to see that well out into the future is the next thing that Anybody approaching the markets, I think, in 24 or 25 is going to have to be able to answer the question of how far into the future can you see? And that's been a really difficult question to answer for most growth companies the last couple of years, which has effectively been the longest closed window for IPOs in our time. Crazy. I have two tougher questions. These aren't even that tough, but I think you're uniquely (laughs) qualified to answer them. Yeah. The first is, what did you make? honestly, of all the SPACs, did you think it was crazy or do you still believe that there's a there there? Again, given that you're at the helm of a private large company and you were at the stock exchange for as long as you were. Oh, by the way, and you were a banker before this. Yeah. Never believed that that was going to be the best path to getting a public company. Still don't believe. You don't? No, because I, I don't think those are, I don't think that's the right path. I think the incentives for a SPAC is to deploy the capital and the sponsors and promoters of the SPAC are paid to simply deploy, not to perform. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the performance, it's been dismal. Mm-hmm. 
that's a track record of a vehicle to invest in dismal performance. Mm-hmm. I mean, that should be probably the best indicator as to where value can be created. There's not been a lot of value. Sure. There's been a, a few, maybe, maybe, but I, I can't even hardly point to a company that that's been, you know, the right path for long-term value creation. Yeah. The other one, what do you think of NFTs? Do you think there's a there there? I'll just go back to our take on it, which was a little bit different than most. You know, I think when you look at digital assets today, there's a lot of exciting things that ultimately will be unlocked with blockchain technology, technology that can essentially show the provenance of of ownership ultimately. We were trying to apply that to physical items to essentially say, I've got a digital right to possess a physical item that actually StockX has in its possession. And we thought it was a way to unlock the trading of that asset without it ever physically moving, much like a derivatives contract where the underlying commodity, oil, coffee, never moves. Just somebody is making a bet on where that is going to go. And so that was always our view of, of what the mm. application was yeah. going to be for us in current culture. Obviously, as an asset, most of those have gone to zero because there wasn't a, an asset class. There wasn't a real value in the underlying thing that was created. It didn't have either a collectible value or a value that could translate anywhere in the physical world. So it's an opportunity yet to be realized. Yeah. It seems like if there is a world where those exist, I'm not convinced they're dead, to be completely honest. Like I still believe that there is a way for those to be really interesting. The NFT itself I think of it more as the application of digital ownership to other things is a huge concept. I mean, we actually have that today in so many other examples. I mean, the stock market works like that. I mean, Um, that's what StockX is. Yeah, and it is what we are, except we're still in the movement of physical physical goods. And I think we envision a world where those goods, certainly if you're a collector, that you don't have to actually move those around and still have ownership and still be able to derive the value or the trading value out of that as an asset. That opportunity is still to be realized. Totally. Um, but I think it's still a, you know, a big idea. And a lot of the things that we're actually still building today, where we're building warehouses, where items can be stored pre-transaction, you know, we think we're going to be able to continue to unlock that. And now we're effectively building the physical infrastructure to allow for a digital trading future, should that be an opportunity that consumers really want to pursue into the future? Totally. At what point does your ambition plateau? To the question that your <laughs> wife asked you of like, what are you going to do? At what point does career ambition, when is it satisfied? One of the things that I think of as myself is just a, an individual that's under development. I'm not ever going to be complete. I would hope that my progress continues, but just in a different role or a different position. And so for me, as I think about what next, I've actually thought about that as chapter seven for me, because I've had six chapters, very distinct chapters in my career. You know, chapter seven, I've learned a lot in chapter six, uh, which is partnering with founders, partnering with entrepreneurs. Building chapter six is StockX. StockX, yeah. yeah. And I've learned a lot in chapter six for me because 
part of that has been building a team and part of that has been working with true visionaries and entrepreneurs to bring the StockX vision to life, but at scale and global scale. It's been really gratifying to be able to work with the original founders of StockX to unlock their vision. And and honestly, it's been an honor. I will, will always thank them for the opportunity that I've been given to be able to do that. I think chapter seven is probably going to be some door that would open up an opportunity, which has been actually every door, every chapter of my career has been a door that's peaked open and at the right time, it's like, oh, okay, it's time for me to go through that door, whatever, whatever it is. And I've been open to those opportunities. I haven't necessarily sought after or even defined exactly how my career would have unfolded. In fact, I could never have designed or thought that I could have designed what ultimately my career became. If you could have a quote in your bathroom that you stare at while you're brushing your teeth, yeah, what would it be? Well, it was a quote that was on a magnet in on my refrigerator from my mom who passed away a couple of years ago. And this quote, I don't know, she thought it was going to define me, but it certainly has defined me. And the quote is, that which you persist in doing becomes easier not that the nature of the task has changed, but that your ability to do so has increased. And it's just that idea. It's just what I was talking about, that Moody's Hill, the persistence required in life, the persistence required to overcome, the persistence required to achieve, the persistence required to drive through difficult times. It's essentially just being there, just doing it and doing it over and over again. The challenges never go away but somehow your ability to overcome them actually is enhanced because you've been persistent in the set of activities that you've driven yourself to do. And so that will be the gift that my mom gave me and hopefully that I'll be able to give to others. But that quote, you asked me the quote, like I can see it on our, on our refrigerator every day. She gave you, she gave you. No, she just had it up on her refrigerator. As a kid. Yeah. As a kid. I don't think you put magnets on refrigerators anymore, but we grew up like our refrigerator was covered with, things, but that quote was right on the door as you opened it up every day. I saw it every single day and it stayed on the refrigerator forever growing up. And in my, in my family, I probably all of my brothers and sisters could probably quote the same thing because we saw it every day. And But it was just in the locker room. <laughs> it was just there every day in our lives. Can you repeat the quote one more time? That which you persist in doing becomes easier, not that the nature of the task has changed, but that your ability to do so has increased. It's incredible. And it perfectly encapsulates what you were describing about going up the Moody's Hill. Yes. That is Moody's Hill. That is Moody's. That is life. That is career. That is the roles that we accept, that we take on, that become priorities. Persistence is a path if you choose it. I always ask what you think of when you hear the word grip, but I think you just answered it. (laughs) (laughs) That is how I would answer it. I think you just answered it. Is StockX hiring? Yeah, we're we're always- What are you hiring for? Is there any key roles that you want to shout out for people listening that are inspired by what you all are doing? We're a company that's growing, scaling. You know, I think for us- what we're building into the future is this infrastructure to unlock this experience that I've just described. And I think for us, it's 
a mixture of people that understand the operational back end of delivering a service as well as appreciation of the technology that's required to do that. And so as we look at our team, which is you know around 1,300 people worldwide, we're bringing in talented people that see and appreciate that vision and can you know wear a pretty awesome set of sneakers as well. <laughs> Detroit's finest, Scott. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than 100 episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all.